This section will cover the issue of Muslim apocalyptic. Apocalyptic is a comparatively understudied subject in, uh, in Islamic studies. It covers that issue of what happens during and preluding the last day, which is prophesied so often inside the Quran. However, apocalyptic materials are not actually very common inside the Quran itself. The material that we will be discussing is primarily post-Quranic and relates very strongly to similar materials that appear in Christianity and in Judaism. The question of what is an apocalypse is uh, not an easy one to define. Uh, the word comes from the Greek, uh, which means to reveal a secret. The classic apocalypse, uh, probably the one of the most developed in, in history, is uh, the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. But uh, what we find in Islam is not the same form of uh, a literary apocalypse that we find in Christianity or in Judaism. On contradistinction, what we find is large quantities of Hadith materials scattered throughout the literature in fragments, usually containing minor or, uh, or fragmentary prophecies concerning the end. All of these will be associated with the Prophet Muhammad and carry his authority but some will be conversations between him and his close companions, usually Ali bin Abi Talib or Hudayfa bin Yaman. <clears throat> so when we deal with Muslim apocalyptic materials, what we have to do is take all of these different separate fragments and put them into some sort of a coherent whole. What I will be doing in this particular lesson is uh, to bring this material together uh, based on my own research and the conclusions of Muslim writers as well, and present what is the classical Muslim apocalyptic uh, heritage. Now, apocalypse basically des is designed to take one from the present day into the very end, the end of the world, and from there into the judgment day, the day of resurrection, and eventually uh, to, to see humanity into either heaven or hell. Apocalypse, as uh, we define it among Muslims, basically covers that material that leads us up to the end of the world. It contains uh, several different types of material, the first of, all, uh, the first of which is what we could call the moral apocalypse, that uh, is essentially a critique of society. It describes society as being hopelessly corrupted, immoral, uh, and uh, even uh, leading up to a cataclysmic collapse of all social norms. Now, this material is related to whatever happens to be the present day of the apocalyptist. Uh, in other words, if they happen to be relating in the ninth century, then it's, due, then it's uh, good for the ninth century. If they happen to be relating in the 20th century, then it's good for the 20th century. The moral apocalypse is always correct because it is always the way that society is. And that is a very powerful weapon in the hands of the apocalyptist. From the moral apocalypse, usually the uh, the apocalyptic writer will go into... Uh, what we can call conquering uh, apocalypses. Now, these are mostly focused upon the area of Syria and uh, come back to an early frustration that the Muslims had with regard to their conquests. They tried 
uh, during the course of 100 years, basically, to conquer the entire world. And they failed. And this was eternally a frustration for the Muslims. Because the place where they failed was actually the one state that was the closest to them and had a great many cultural affinities with them, which was the Byzantine Empire, located in today in what today we would call Turkey and South uh, Eastern Europe. Uh, the Byzantine Empire was a, was a developed state on the equal of the Muslim state and fought it repeatedly to a standstill. Its capital at Constantinople was probably the largest or one of the largest cities uh, in the world at that particular time. So a great deal of Muslim apocalyptic literature has to do with the fantasies of conquering Constantinople. Now, historically speaking, the Muslims tried three times to conquer Constantinople. Only on the third did they succeed. <clears throat> the first two times, uh, in 680 and in 714 through, uh, through 18, were both disastrous failures. The last time was seven centuries later, uh, when the Ottoman Turks actually did conquer Constantinople. And so, uh, for the Muslims, at that early period, the, uh, the conquest of Constantinople, the supposed treasures that would be located in it, and the ideal of finishing off the conquests, completing the conquest of the last major Christian state around the Mediterranean basin, would have been uh, an idealized finish for the, uh, for the great Islamic conquests. As one can tell from history, that was not to be. Uh, the, the, the pleasure of conquering Constantinople was only accorded to the Muslim Turks uh, centuries later. But there was a concurrent fear. The concurrent fear was the fact that the area that was central to the Muslims, the area of Syria, uh, centered around the city of Damascus, would eventually fall to the Byzantines. And the Byzantines would make some sort of a, a reconquest or a redomination of that area. From a historical point of view, that also reflects a reality. The Byzantine Empire never fully accepted for at least two centuries after its fall uh, the conquest of Syria. They tried repeatedly through various different guerrilla attempts and uh, even different formal invasions to attack the coastal cities, uh, the mountains of Syria, and so forth. And given the fact that Syria was majority Christian at that time, they had uh, no problem finding supporters in that area. And so given uh, that knowledge, then one can see the reality of the fear of the Muslims that Syria would betray them in some way or another. They were only a tiny percentage of the population. And so the apocalyptic prophecies that are present reflect a great deal of fear concerning the idea that some of the Christians might betray the Muslims and or the, the Byzantines would be powerful enough to attack uh, and reconquer uh, that vital area. One should remember that Syria was basically a hinge area that uh, the the Muslim Empire was extremely long and extremely thin, and it was uh, capable of being broken up in several different areas. And if the area of Syria had fallen to non-Muslims, then there would have been some danger that the Muslim world would have simply been split into two. 
so these types of apocalypse, uh, these conquering apocalypses are extremely important as a basis for Muslim apocalyptic literature. And they continue to be important uh, for centuries and even to this present day. Uh, and the reasons for that are fairly obvious, uh, both in the 11th and 12th centuries when Syria was controlled by the Crusaders. Uh, these apocalyptic prophecies came back into vogue uh, because they talk repeatedly about the mention of uh, territories in that area being controlled by foreign uh, or Christian uh, groups. Of course, the original versions don't mention the Franks, but uh, th that can easily be modified. And then at a later time, then with the establishment of the state of Israel, uh, or the appearance of uh, the United States in the the general area, then these these prophecies are oftentimes revived and uh, reused uh, against uh, these other different entities. So conquest prophecies are a first start. They represent a, a, a sort of an earthly transition into the apocalyptic future. And they also represent a, a, a sort of consolidation, an idealized consolidation of the Muslim uh, entity, political entity. The reason why they do that is because of the role of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is, uh, is a problem in Islam. From the early per, uh, conquest of, uh, of Jerusalem in 638, uh, Jerusalem was very closely identified with several Muslim aspirations. Uh, one of those was that this was the area that was identified with, uh, with the, the prophet's night journey and ascension into heaven. Gradually, over a period of some 60, 70 years after the conquests, uh, the structure known as the Dome of the Rock was built uh, over the area which traditionally had been the Jewish Holy Temple uh, that had been destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. And this structure continued to have certain messianic qualities about it that were both uh, physical and tangible in the sense that they represented a legitimizing factor for, uh, for caliphs, uh, a holy structure that was designed to increase their relig religious legitimacy, and also as an otherworldly device, because many of the traditions that were associated with the Dome of the Rock indicated that it was something that was seen as something like a portal, a uh, a midpoint to the next world, uh, oftentimes seen as a gate into paradise. Uh, as a transition point whereby the prophet made his transition into paradise and then believers would as well. Now, the fact that it was seen as the center of the Jewish temple and was known to have been the site of the Jewish temple, uh, which was destroyed by the Romans, remembering that the Romans, uh, that the Byzantines considered themselves to be the descendants of the Romans and even called themselves the Romans up until the, the Middle Ages, um, gave the Muslims a feeling that they were rebuilding the temple. And much of the apocalyptic literature actually has to do with uh, finding the temple treasures and returning them back to Jerusalem. And that when that happens, then there would be a beginning of uh, the Messianic era. 
Now, so the conquests were, had, had both a sense of actual physical, tangible, uh, financial and land gain, as well as spiritual and vengeance-oriented gain, vengeance for uh, the destruction of the Second Temple. Now, other different Muslim apocalyptic uh, scenarios branch off from this basic scenario. There are a number of different uh, scenarios that will take place in areas uh, further to the east. Primarily those focus upon the uh, abuses that were ladled against that area by the Umayyad dynasty that ruled from Syria between 661 and 747. The Umayyad dynasty oppressed the area of Iraq and Persia quite strongly. Uh, it perceived those areas to be uh, loci for, uh, for Shiite uh, elements, uh, for anti-governmental movements of all sorts. And, uh, and so on a regular basis, it, it sent its most harsh governors to rule those areas. Now, not surprisingly, the peoples of those areas rejected that and resented it quite strongly. And so, given that fact, then they began to be open to a great deal of messianic uh, propaganda and anti-Umayyad propaganda, which had something of a counter-messianic uh, effect. The, the best example is that of the figure of what came to be known as the Sufiani, the Sufiani was a, is, is kind of a multifaceted figure. Um, he is usually said to be a descendant of Muawiyah bin Abi Sufyan, who was the fifth caliph, the founder of the Umayyad dynasty, and probably the most successful of all of the Umayyad rulers, ruling between 661 and 680. He's also the only ruler in uh, Umayyad history against whom there's no recorded revolts. But uh, for Syrians... For Syrian Muslims, uh, the Sufiani family uh, were heroes. They represented probably the best time for Syria. So, uh, the conquests were still happening at that time. Uh, the area was quite wealthy. Uh, Muawiyah was a good ruler. Um, but for non-Syrians, especially Iraqis, the Sufiani represented uh, the, 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 the caricature of a, of a tyrannical Arab ruler who would uh, repress the area of Iraq and uh, try to do his best to destroy the Arab peoples and especially the family of the prophet. So what we find is a number of different co uh, conflicting traditions about this figure called the Sufiani. Uh, they are messianic in quality in uh, the Syrian in the Syrian renditions. They are demonic in quality when they tend to come from Iraq or from Persia. Usually, the uh, apocalyptic scenario that is given is that the conquests uh, start off; they continue until armies are local, uh, localized in uh, in Constantinople. They they take Constantinople. They are surrounded by great riches. Uh, the likes of which that the, they've never seen before. Sometimes the tradition talks about uh, about the about the soldiers taking a treasure of gold, a treasure of jewels, and a treasure of virgins inside uh, Constantinople. 
And so there's a great deal of very lurid accounts about the conquest of Constantinople. But one of the uh, one of the key elements of early Islamic conquest was the fact that uh, that Muslims simply lacked manpower. Uh, the Muslim polity uh, essentially had to take every single male Muslim to uh, into the army when people went out to fight. And so there was always the danger that uh, the Christian majority in, uh, let's say, Syria or in different other places would simply rise up and revolt when, the, uh, when these armies were, uh, were gone. And so what we find is that usually that, that conquest uh, scenario then jumps into uh, a, a, a revolt by the Christians, which is sometimes brutally put down. And then there is the appearance of this figure called the Sufiani. The Sufiani uh, has to deal with a number of different revolts as well. Um, but his revolts are usually placed in the area of Iraq. Uh, which historically is accurate. Um, the Umayyads had to face a number of different revolts in that area uh, on a regular basis. So the Sufiani, uh, according to these apocaly- apocalyptic traditions, then travels to the east, and his, uh, his depredations call forth the appearance of the Messianic figure. Now, the Messianic figure in Islam uh, is called the Mahdi. Um, the word Mahdi is, uh, is not found inside the Quran, um, although the verb Hadaya, meaning to guide, uh, is, uh, is quite common. Development concerning the title of Mahdi and the nature of the Messianic figure appears to be exclusively post-Quranic. Um, inside the Quran, we find a great deal of material about Jesus, who is invariably called Jesus the Messiah, Isa um, the question that arises with this particular title, and we'll come back to the function of Jesus shortly, uh, is what does the messianic function of Jesus inside the Quran portend? Does it imply any type of messianic function that we find in the Judeo-Christian tradition? Probably not. Probably not. Probably the title of Masih uh, by the time it got into the Quran, is perceived as being part of Jesus' actual just given name and not as a, as a title. But it is important to realize that that messianic aspect, even though Jesus is said to return inside the Quran, uh, there is no real messianic quality that seems to be accorded to that particular return, at least at that lowest level. But immediately after the death of the prophet, then we find several different trends as far as messianic expectations go. One of those is to focus upon Jesus as an actual messianic figure and to begin to accord to him classic messianic uh, traits. First of all, that he returns from heaven. He has the quality of justice. He brings, uh, he brings eternal peace. He promotes conversion of people to, to Islam. He uh, performs the function of breaking crosses, slaughtering pigs, 
doing things that affirm the uh, the rightness of Islam, at least according to its traditional accounts. And moreover, he tends to rule. Now, this is uh, to some extent surmise, uh, but I believe that it can be documented to some extent as well. Um, but I, I think that the polemical encounter that happened between Islam and Christianity at that early stage made it impossible for Jesus to continue on as the actual messianic figure of Islam. That it was too difficult for Muslims who had an imperative to be different from Christians and Jews and a necessity to uh, to differentiate themselves because otherwise they simply would have been swallowed up in the uh, uh, in the vast majority of Jews and Christians that surrounded them uh, led them to focus on other different titles and figures as the messianic figure and so gradually over a period of centuries those messianic functions tend to focus much more upon that figure of the Mahdi. Now, the name of the Mahdi uh, means, uh, means that rightly guided one, or the one who rightly guides. Uh, it's hard to tell from the, from the form. Usually it's translated into English as the rightly guided one. His name is usually said to be uh, Muhammad ben Abdullah. In other words, the name of the prophet. But he is not the prophet actually reincarnated. He is, and here again, we have several different trends, one of which is that he is a, a descendant of the prophet. That opens up quite a number of different possibilities. Another is, is that he is the best possible Muslim. In other words, the second trend tends to be of a universalistic character and gradually heralds the appearance of Islam as a universalistic religion as opposed to being a merely Arab religion. So the Mahdi then, uh, and we'll talk more about Mahdi appearances uh, in the second section. Uh, the Mahdi is, uh, is a figure who is usually said to appear in one of two alternate places. One of those is in Khorasan. Um, and that's the area of what today we would call Eastern Iran, uh, Afghanistan, Central Asia. From a historical point of view, most of the propaganda that has to do with the appearance of the Mahdi in that area is to be uh, associated with the, with the revolt of the Abbasids uh, that happened historically between approximately 742 and 747. A great deal of messianic uh, proclamations were put out at that particular time using the name of the Mahdi. Uh, and saying that one should expect him, one should expect him to appear at this time, one should expect him to appear from this particular place, and so forth. Uh, and so, not surprisingly, these predictions have found them, their way en masse into the Hadith literature. Uh, the second optional area is uh, the area of Mecca or Medina, uh, usually Medina. But uh, and this uh, these predictions should be localized with the revolt of one Muhammad Nafsa Zakiyah, who is a great great grandson of the Prophet Muhammad, who revolted in 762. Uh, this was also a figure who put out a great deal of messianic uh, propaganda, and uh, much of the materials that are concerning with him have to do 
with his uh, fleeing from uh, from Medina, uh, taking refuge in Mecca. Uh, it says that the that the Mahdi will appear when he is grasping onto the Kaaba uh, between the Rukun and the Yaman, which are two locations uh, inside the uh, the Kaaba. And that the people will uh, acclaim him as the Mahdi, and that he will then go forth and conquer, and so forth. So whichever one of these two scenarios uh, one accepts, uh, essentially both of them have to confront uh, that figure of the Sufiani. Uh, The Sufiani uh, searches after the Mahdi, uh, somewhat like uh, King Herod searching after uh, the baby Jesus, he does so in a brutal fashion, uh, continually killing people and uh, desecrating uh, holy places. And so his violence then provokes the appearance of the Mahdi. The Mahdi appears uh, sort of theater-like. Uh, he's chosen by God, and then uh, he gathers an army and then successively defeats the uh, the Sufiani and essentially chases him back into uh, into Syria. Now there, uh, the Syr- uh, the Syrians actually end up accepting the Mahdi, at least according to the apocalyptic sources, uh, and the Sufiani himself is pardoned. Um, he is a sinning Muslim, but he, in the end, is still a Muslim. The things that he's done are horrible, but uh, he asks. Uh, He says, uh, pardon me, my cousin, he says, uh, because the Sufiani would be related to the Mahdi. Uh, He says, uh, says, if you pardon me, I will become a sword uh, before you. And so the Mahdi does pardon him and then continues on with the conquests. So what happens right there essentially is a long kind of glitch between the uh, between the conquests, where the Muslims essentially conquer Constantinople, then they have to come back to deal with the, the establishment of the Messianic state. The Messianic state is is established, and then the uh, uh, the uh, the Mahdi then will go forth uh, to uh, to conquer again. So, reading what happens here. It says, uh, it says, then the Mahdi will go out at the head of his followers to the land of the Byzantines and will travel until he hears of the destruction of uh, the Sufiani and his followers. And he said, this is the word of God most high. But if one might, might see when they are terrified there is, and there is no escape, they are taken from a place near at hand, uh, which is Quran 34, 51. And the Mahdi will praise God most high for this and will go out to the land of the Byzantines which about, with about 100,000 soldiers and arrive at Constantinople. So one sees from apocalypses like this that the Byzantines continually managed to recreate themselves. They were destroyed once, then the Muslims had to flee, they're, come, they're back in their, their previous position. There's an endless cyclicality to the, uh, to the apocalyptic predictions. Um, old foes continually appear and reappear. Never, never anybody stays completely dead in the apocalyptic land. He will invite the the king of the Byzantines to accept Islam, but the latter will refuse and will fight him. The fight uh, between them will last two months, then the king of the Byzantines will be defeated, and the Muslims will enter into Constantinople. See, this is kind of a second time. The Mahdi will stop by its gate. It has seven walls, which is historically accurate, and will call out Allahu Akbar seven times, and at each call, a wall will fall down. 
again, very much closely reminiscent of uh, Joshua and the walls of Jericho, uh, a a trope uh, taken right out of the Bible. The Mahdi will enter into it and will kill a great number, and the king of the Byzantines will be killed. Then the sword will be lifted from them, and the Muslims will take an amount of spoils that cannot be counted until a man will take an amount of jewels that he is unable to carry. While this is happening, the news will arrive from the deputy of the Mahdi that the Dajjal has appeared and that people are gathering to him. Now here we find another figure, another major, major figure, an evil figure uh, that is uh, integral to the Muslim apocalyptic scenario. And that's the figure of the Dajjal. Uh, the Dajjal, without a doubt, is very, very closely related to his counterpart in Christian tradition. Uh, the word Dajjal, no doubt, is taken from the Syriac deceiver, uh, and the Dajjal is, is very essentially the Antichrist. Um, he's a figure that is described in the classical sources as being a, basically a ridiculous one. He usually has... Uh, one eye, and uh, on his forehead he has the word kafir, infidel. He uh, And his eye is usually said to be disfigured in some way or another. He's grossly tall, uh, has enormous ears, um, and it's some, sometimes rather difficult to understand why exactly such large groups of people are said to be attracted by him. Um, but presumably he has some sort of spiritual attraction that causes that to be so. Um, but he is a, of a completely different nature than that of the Sufiani. The Sufiani uh, is perhaps, we can call him the caricature of, a, of an Arab evil and oppressive ruler. However, the, the Dajjal is existentially and completely evil. And his evil is such that it's hard to say whether he's actually even human. There's a discussion back and forth whether he is possessed by Satan or whether he is a satanic creature that has been uh, created somehow or another uh, by the prince of evil. Um, And there's no final conclusion about that subject. Um, Some say that uh, that he was born of a woman. Some say that he's created and so forth. But he uh, it, undoubtedly he derives most of his powers from uh, from Satan, and he's an antichrist in several different ways. First of all, most of his miracles very closely parody those of Jesus. In other words, he's said to uh, to create and distribute food, to raise the dead to heal, especially lepers and so forth, and various different other miracles that are closely associated to the miracles that are ascribed to Jesus inside the Quran. Uh, and so he's very much the, the antithesis of Jesus. Okay, so the apocalypse continues and says, so they will leave these spoils, they being the Muslims, and return to their lands in haste to wage war on the Dajjal. Now, that is not always the dominant uh, belief. Now, the the Dajjal, despite his ridiculous appearance, presents a very powerful spiritual uh, attraction to just about everybody. Um, And uh, the Muslim sources insist that most people will fall to his uh, temptation. Uh, He will gather large numbers of people that will follow him, 
Uh, and usually they are the outgroups of Muslim society. Uh, Jews, Turks, Uzbeks, Bedouin, all the people that nobody else wants. Um, and, uh, and so these people will follow him around. And many Muslims apparently will also fall to his temptation. But there will always be a core of Muslims, at least according to the sources, that will fight against him and, uh, and resist his temptation. So it is said that the Mahdi will go towards the Dajjal, while on his head is the turban of the messenger of God. They will meet in battle and fight a fierce battle. More than 30,000 of the Dajjal's followers will be killed, and the Dajjal will be defeated and retreat towards Jerusalem. Then it says, uh, God will order the earth to hold the legs of his horse and will send against them a red wind that will kill 40,000 of them. Numbers are meaningless inside the apocalyptic world. Lots of people can get killed and nothing really happens. Uh, he said, then the Mahdi will advance at the head of his army, almost 100,000 in their hands, wh- the white flags. The Mahdi will say to the army of the Dajjal, woe to you. Do you doubt that this blind man, this liar is the Dajjal? They will say, no, but we only live by his food. The, uh, the Dajjal's followers are sometimes willingly deluded. Uh, they will, uh, so they will be metamorphosed into monkeys and pigs. Then Jesus will descend to the earth after this and pray behind the Mahdi. Now, there are a lot of different uh, descriptions of this, uh, and some of them emphasize that Jesus will actually be the agent by which the Dajjal is killed. Uh, usually, apocalypses that mention that will describe the Muslims being besieged inside the city of Jerusalem and just about ready to fall to the armies of the Dajjal who surround the mountains around them uh, like, uh, like sand on the seashore. And then Jesus comes down, uh, and just at that supreme moment, then he uh, kills the followers of the Dajjal, and then he begins to chase the Dajjal. And the Dajjal can't take that. He can't take that, and so he gives up the, the chase around the area of, uh, of the, the city of Lydda, uh, where he is, uh, he is exterminated. And so, once again, there is kind of a sense of, of two polar opposites, Jesus versus the Dajjal. Once Jesus appears, then the Dajjal has to, uh, uh, to disappear. Now, the interesting thing about Jesus' reappearance right here is that it is such a problem within Islam. It says, then Jesus will descend to the earth after that and will pray behind the Mahdi. The problem there is that, according to Islam, Jesus is a prophet. And this particular sentence, and others like it, uh, the appearance of Jesus after the time of uh, the prophet Muhammad, who is said to be the seal of the prophets in uh, Quran 33, 20, uh, where it has to be very carefully delineated that Jesus is not actually taking the place of the prophet. Now, the Mahdi is, the, is one of the descendants of the prophet, usually, and even if he isn't, his, uh, his position still affirms the superiority of Islam. Jesus, whatever... Uh, happens afterwards is still the prophet that was sent toward, uh, to Christians according to the Islamic interpretation and therefore uh, he cannot precede the Mahdi in any way and so one of the ways that, uh, that Muslims have gotten around that issue of, uh, of Jesus reappearing is the fact that they make sure that the Mahdi prays 
before Jesus in order to affirm his superiority over Jesus as well. Now, the, there's additional problems with that. The fact is, is that, uh, is that the Mahdi, despite his God, uh, his God initiated powers, it's very hard to, to get a, to get a description of, or to get, to, to come up with a word that, that exactly describes what the Mahdi is. Um, is maybe God inspired powers, uh, is not on the level of a prophet in Sunni Islam is most carefully not. Uh, we'll talk more about the significance of that when we get to Shiism, but um, it's, it, it's very important for Muslims, uh, Sunni Muslims, to differentiate between the Mahdi and an actual prophet. There cannot be any prophet after the time of, the, of, of Muhammad. And therefore, the Mahdi, while uh, inspired by God, while by, driven by God, and, uh, and, and mandated by God, doesn't have any of the of the actual powers that uh, that Muhammad did. He, in the end, is uh, is kind of a, a of a of a slightly superior man, but just a man. He does not have uh, hardly any miraculous powers, and he certainly doesn't have the power of prophecy at all. So the the whole sequence there between uh, Jesus, uh, the Dajjal, the Mahdi, is a very complicated one, and one that has a lot of different uh, potential for political uh, problems. Uh, the Mahdi as a figure, not surprisingly, which we'll talk about in the next section, uh, is the focus for a lot of political aspirations among extremist and radical groups in uh, in classical Islam. And so most of the traditions about him really only appear in secondary or non-canonical literature. The most common traditions about the Mahdi are uh, this, this one s- sentence that says, if there was only one day left in the world, God would elongate it and send a man who would fill the world with justice and righteousness just as it has been filled with injustice and unrighteousness. And I believe that that tradition really encapsulates uh, the basis for the messianic state that the Mahdi fulfills, is that it has to be characterized by the quality of justice. Now, there are other messianic qualities. Uh, sometimes the Mahdi is described as being one who brings forth peace and plenty, um, oftentimes uh, verses that, uh, that uh, are similar to the Messianic verses in Isaiah, where um, the, the lion shall lie down with the lamb, uh, that uh, there shall be, the, the sword shall be beaten into plowshares and so forth are mentioned. So Messianic qualities are not confined merely to justice. There's also peace and plenty. There's a uh, prevalence of money. Uh, there's the personal connection with God. Um, there's a, a, a fundamental change in the natural order that allows things like, like the lion to lay down with the lamb, where there's no further hostility between species uh, in the way that it characterizes our, our present time. But having said that, at the core of the messianic state, is the is the longing for some type of justice 
And so the Mahdi is, uh, his function basically is to bring that type of justice and only then secondarily to uh, resume the conquests, to bring on the peace and plenty and so forth. Now, the thing that's so interesting about the Messianic Age and Sunni apocalypses is that it's of such short duration. Uh, as one can guess from the tradition that I just cited, uh, that in certain cases, it's really literally only one day. Uh, in most other cases, it doesn't last much more than five to seven to nine years, um, which in and of themselves are fairly interesting. But it doesn't have the same sort of millennial quality that you find in uh, Christian uh, traditions or that you would find in Shiite traditions. It doesn't last for a lengthy period of time. In my opinion, it's basically uh, designed to allow for there to have been one just period inside human history prior to the end of the world. Because basically the Mahdi is almost the, the, the end of the world. But he's not quite the end of the world. He does die. And then it all collapses. And this group, this, this killing machine group called Gog, Gog and Magog appear. Now, I don't really fully understand Gog and Magog. Uh, they do make an appearance inside the Quran. And I'll uh, just read uh, the verses that, that refer to them. They appear inside Surah number 18, especially. They're referred uh, one other place in, in the Quran, but uh, this is the most important reference against them. Um, they, refer, uh, they appear inside the story of Alexander the Great, or Dhul-Karnain, who uh, goes out to the east, and then he discovers this particular area, which it says, it says but when, they, when he reached the point separating the two barriers, he found beside them a people who could barely understand what is said. They said, O Dhul-Karnain, in other words, Alexander the Great, surely Gog and Magog are making mischief in the land. Shall we pay you a tribute so that you may build a barrier between us and them? He said, what my Lord has empowered me to do is better, so help me forcefully and I will build a barrier between you and them. Bring me two uh, large pieces of iron so that when he had leveled up the gap between the two sides, he said, blow. And having turned it to fire, he said, bring me molten brass to pour on it. Then they could neither scale it nor make a hole through it. He said, this is a mercy from my Lord, but when my Lord's promise comes to pass, he will turn it to rubble, and the promise of my Lord is ever true. And on that day, we will make them surge upon one another, and the trumpet shall be blown, and we will gather them together. Now, this is not very similar to the stories about Gog and Magog that appear in uh, the Bible, uh, in the book of Ezekiel and the book of Revelation. Um, basically what is being described here appears to be some sort of recollection of uh, the Central Asian peoples that are located out beyond uh, the area of Persia, uh, where there are several different choke points that have been used traditionally to hold back uh, nomads um, in that area. Um, but, and the nomads uh, apparently uh, represent that fear of Gog and Magog. That somehow or another they will get loose of their area and come into the settled areas of, uh, of the Middle East and destroy it completely and utterly. 
which to a large extent is what happened during the Mongol invasions. And so not surprisingly, it was uh, pretty common for, uh, for Muslims to identify the Mongol invasions with, uh, with Gog and Magog. Whatever way you slice it, Gog and Magog uh, are basically inside the, inside the Muslim literature uh, killing machines. They go around, they destroy everything, and there's pretty much nothing left uh, after they are finished off. And so that's an appropriate point where God can finish uh, the earth uh, when pretty much everybody is dead. Now, there's a couple of different other issues that we need to discuss before we uh, finish talking about classical Muslim apocalyptic. And the major of those has to do with, uh, with dating of the end. Uh, one of the most deadly temptations that, uh, that an apocalyptist can do is to fall into the idea that the end time, the end of the world, can actually uh, be dated chronologically. Um, just like in the Bible, the Quran says specifically in no less than three, three different places that uh, only God knows the end of the world and that knowledge cannot be imparted to humanity. Nonetheless, throughout the Hadith literature, you find on a continual basis the temptation to, uh, to date the end of the world. Now, usually that temptation is strongest when there is some sort of uh, round number from a, uh, from, uh, in the Hijri calendar. The Hijri calendar, the Muslim calendar, is uh, different from the, from the Christian calendar. The Hijri calendar runs on a lunar cycle. And so every hundred years against the Christian uh, calendar, it loses three years. So one can't easily calculate what exactly a given year is going to be. You have to look at various different tables and so forth. But suffice it to say that uh, when one reaches a period where there's a, there's a hundred year cycle, then that's usually a locus for the appearance of apocalyptic predictions uh, concerning the end of the world. And that was probably the strongest with regard to the year 100. It's very interesting to, uh, to, to correlate the, uh, the, the, the Muslim conquests with the year 100. Um, because, as I said, uh, the great push that happened uh, towards Constantinople actually happened in that year, uh, in that year, uh, 714 to, to 718, which uh, fell right on the year 100 uh, Hijri. So, but having said that, there's a whole series of parallels, which we'll talk about some in the next, uh, in the next section, of different movements that will focus upon a given year, usually of a 100-year nature, such as the year 500, the year 1000 in 1591 uh, was, uh, was the locus for a great many apocalyptic predictions. But uh, not surprisingly, the year 1000, really uh, many Muslims did believe that the world was actually going to come to an end. And uh, so a very important figure, Jalaluddin Suyuti, who died in 1505, uh, was commissioned to write uh, a treatise which uh, tried to prove that the world was not going to come to an end in the year 1000, 1591, but that it was going to continue on, that God had given an additional 500 years to the world for it to repent. Uh, 
Now, that's interesting from our point of view because that essentially puts it into our own time. Uh, the year 15, uh, 1500 uh, Hijri will fall approximately in uh, 2076. And so it's not surprising that when we talk about in our fourth section on contemporary Muslim apocalyptic, that there's a great deal of speculation about uh, the end being nigh or seeing uh, portents of the end, especially among those that, uh, uh, that hold to these predictions. So... Summing up, Muslim apocalyptic literature and apocalyptic beliefs are very closely tied to uh, Christian and Jewish ones. Some uh, cycles, such as that of the Sufiani and the Mahdi, are entirely historically based within uh, within uh, Arab historical traditions. But some, such as the Dajjal Jesus cycle, are uh, actually complete, almost completely taken from uh, from Christian cycles. And some, uh, such as Gog and Magog. Uh, have some parallels with uh, with uh, uh, similar material in the Bible, but uh, in the end uh, come to quite different conclusions. The Muslim apocalyptic material has, I would say, a limited importance. It uh, has an importance, especially on those times where there is apocalyptic speculation. Other times, oftentimes Muslims will simply deny its existence. Um, there are probably about 150 to maybe 200 Muslim uh, apocalyptic tracts uh, and booklets and books uh, from the classical period uh, that are extant um, that attest to the power of this material, but it shouldn't be over-exaggerated. Uh, it spawned, on the one hand, a great many political movements, especially by those who would consider themselves to be the Mahdi, um, but uh, it also uh, went through long periods of quiescence. Thank you.